Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast, and I am your host, Natalie Freeman. Today, we're so excited to welcome Daniel Oppenheimer to read from his new book, Far From Respectable, Dave Hickey and His Art, and to join me in conversation. Before I introduce him, I wanted to remind you that Skylight Books is open for in-store browsing with a limited capacity. We're open from 11 to 7 on weekdays and 10 to 8 on weekends. Masks and social distancing are required, and we ask that you continue to be kind and respectful to our booksellers and your fellow shoppers when you visit us. We are also offering online ordering through our beautiful, newly designed website, which you can find at www.skylightbooks.com. And now to introduce you to Daniel. Daniel Oppenheimer is the author of Exit Right, The People Who Left the Left and Reshaped the American Century. He has written for The Washington Post, The Atlantic, Slate, Washington Monthly, Texas Monthly, Guernica, and The New Republic, among others. Welcome, Daniel. I'm excited to talk to you today. Thanks for having me. Uh, So I thought that you could read us a little something from Far From Respectable. I'll give us a little description here. Far From Respectable is a focused, evocative exploration of Dave Hickey's work, his impact on the field of art criticism, and the man himself from his Huck Finn childhood to his drug-fueled periods as both a New York gallerist and Nashville songwriter, to finally his anointment as a tenured professor and MacArthur Fellow. So yeah, so I'm going to read you something that's actually pretty personal, although primarily the book is about is about Dave. Um, but I thought I, there's a passage in the last last chapter, last essay that talks a little bit about my sort of both my sort of personal feelings about Dave. Um, and also a little, it's from a, an essay that talks about when I went to visit him at his home in Santa Fe. Uh, so I am going to start here. He treated you like you were supposed to get out there and do something. Dave once wrote of his old theater professor, Walter Wolbach, who had landed at Texas Christian University after fleeing the Nazis. Again, quoting Dave, he told me that I was a callow redneck with all the spirituality of a toilet seat, that I could possibly cure the former, but would probably have to live with the latter. But that was great. Nobody had ever told me I was anything before, so I took it to heart. Dave on the page is a gentler presence than Herr Volbach, but he had done for me as a young would-be writer something like what Volbach did for him. He had deflated me and liberated me. Nobody cared whether I dedicated myself to writing. It was a selfish, superfluous thing to do and one that deserved no presumption of virtue. If done right, however, it could be wonderful and world-shaking. Dave also revealed to me the real enemies of such an endeavor, the quote, Aryan muscle boys who would bend art to serve their stern, humorless deities. He wrote, so all the muscle boy artists and art artists and writers, paraphrasing Volbach, 
They will become professors and the darlings of professors and they will teach the young to revere their pure muscle boy art because it is good for them and they will teach women and Jews and queers to make this muscle boy art too. And it will be very pure because they are muscle boys and they don't have to please anyone. So there'll be no cabaret, no pictures, no fantasy or flashing lights, no filth or sexy talk, no cruelty, no melodies, no laughter, no Max Reinhardt, no Ur Faust, no Midsummer Night's Dream and nobody will love it. In Dave's cosmology, the Aryan muscle boys weren't just actual Aryan muscle boys. They were all the Puritans and school marms of whatever faith, color, ideology, and affiliation who think art isn't just subordinate to ethics, but a practical branch of it. The descendants of the Aryan muscle boys who made Walter Wolbach leave the dynamism and glories of Weimar Germany for the wonderbred wasteland of Fort Worth weren't just uptight political conservatives. They were politically correct professors and curators, well-meaning activists and art teachers, right-thinking bureaucrats and philanthropists. They were my father, Tim Oppenheimer, whose own ancestors left Germany in the mid 19th century, bringing with them to Pittsburgh a very Hochdeutsch ethos of industry, virtue, and austerity. That ethos had transmitted itself down to my dad, had been filtered through his left-wing politics, and ultimately had enmeshed itself in my nervous system where I experienced it as a quarreling clan of psychologically crippling ideas about the obligations of the good life, the uncouthness of striving, the frivolity of pleasure, and the superiority of Northern European aesthetics. That's too grandiose. Like Dave, my father was raised by wolves, though in my dad's case, they were narcissistic upper-class German Jews rather than artsy narcissistic middle-class Texans. He struggled, my dad, to figure out what, what to do with what he was given and far too often not given. He and my mother, who has her own kinked history of communist inflected Jewish Puritan ethics, were maybe good enough parents. I'm imposing too simple a schema on a complex history. But what I do remember clearly is that my father modeled a style of virtuous self-abnegation that too easily slid into self-sabotage and that his left-wing politics were both genuine and a convenient veil for certain pathologies. To strive for oneself too nakedly was to buy into capitalistic values. To reach out to others to advance one's own interests was to use them as means rather than to treat them as ends in themselves. To seek pleasure was okay in moderation but could too easily descend into indulgence. Our home was a visual and textural instantiation of these values. Hardwoods and off-whites, shabby cheek furniture and throw blankets and natural fibers, tastefully framed art in monochrome or low contrast colors. A friend once called it Jewish minimalism. This was my inheritance against which I struggled very inarticulately and mostly unconsciously until I read Dave. He didn't sever me from my inheritance. For good and ill, I remained my father's son guided and tortured by the call of the good but he offered a profoundly different perspective on it, reclassifying what had always seemed virtue as vice, investing with dignity what we had treated as ancillary and casting into vivid relief the frailty, forgiveness, and permission that too often were missing from our family system. I feel I'm, very exposed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy that you started there though, because, well, interestingly enough, you started with a passage that I had in my final question, so okay. we can bookend back around to it. Um, but I wanted to start kind of where you start in the book, which is with what the stakes are. Uh, why this why this book now? And you point out these two uh, ideas of like, what are, what are the stakes that I'm raising here? One, the value and legacy of Hickey's writing, um, wh where they stand, if they still stand, and whether or not he's particularly relevant now. Um, so as for someone who was not familiar with Hickey going into this and who very much enjoyed the book, I know that I can't speak for everyone, but I'm going to answer yes to both those questions. 
<laughs> so I don't know if yeah me too obviously yeah. I, obviously you're uh you're answering yes to them as well uh throughout the book but I was wondering if you could speak I guess very broadly about why why you felt there was still value in legacy and it obviously that's the the entirety of the book there um but then I have a lot more questions about the relevance so maybe if you could just speak to your personal connection with the legacy of it yeah so I read um Hickey, when I was just out of college, my brother kind of handed on me, said, you have to read this. And, and the same thing had happened to him. him. Somebody had said, you know, handed him the book, said, you got to read this. And so he, he was sort of a cult figure then. And I think outside the old art world where he's still pretty well known, he remains a cult figure. And so I've sort of loved him since then. I sort of, that was, that was his book, Air Guitar, but I went back and read his previous collection, Invisible Dragon, and tracked down his collection of short fiction, um, prior convictions and then just followed him over the years. So, I, I mean, I think he's sort of, I think he's one of the great writers of criticism and nonfiction, you know, in American letters of the last half century. I mean, I don't want to undersell it. Like, I think he's an extraordinary writer, one of our great essayists. And I think, you know, in that sense, he deserves, you know, people writing about him, but there is also this question of legacy, which he is a cult figure. Um, he's also someone so he, he's not assured continuity. Uh, he's old. He probably won't mm -hmm. be around for much longer. He's not writing much now anyway. He's not assured continuity, on top of which he's done himself a lot of dis he, he's done himself a great disservice in the way he's stewarded or or failed to steward his own legacy. You know, yeah. to put it simply, he's been a real asshole in a lot of public situations. Like he, yeah. when 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 he's writing, he's he's you know extraordinarily careful and articulate and poised and, and assured in what he's saying when he's, you know, on, on a, a dais, uh, he can say some pretty obnoxious things and fall into a sort of caricature of himself. And so that, among other reasons, you know, I think means that, that he's less likely to sort of be read in 20 years than he otherwise would be, though the odds are always against everyone. So that's, I mean, that's the legacy. I think he's great. Yeah. I think if you look at his best work, which is what I think we should do when we're considering you know, writer and whether they should continue to be read. I think he's extraordinary, but I think he needs advocates. And so I wanted to be, I, I think to, to be, you know, in order for him to continue to be read into the future, he needs advocates. Um, he needs people who care about him and his writing to continue to sort of push it, push his books into other people's hands and say, you've got to read this. It'll blow your mind. It'll, you know, change the way you see the world. So, so that part of it is just, that's, that's the motive. Well, and I was talking to uh, some of my coworkers were asking me what I was reading when I was going through the book at the store. And uh, one of them said, oh, I, I know Hickey. I studied Hickey and walked over to our art shelf and handed me uh, one of his books. And he was like, yeah, it his work was some of the first that I found accessible, mm -hmm. um, which was nice to hear from someone who studied him as an art student. And then also to read your book now, having not been really familiar with him, you made his work feel extremely accessible as well. And you also made it feel timely and current, which is kind of your second question, is this relevant now? And like you said, if I wanna be an advocate for him, I need to, someone needs to continue to talk about him. And did you find it hard to convince people that it was relevant? I didn't feel like it was a tough <laughs> argument or a tough sell, but did you find it difficult? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think, let me see how I can answer that. Like, you know, 
Dave is, is, and I call him Dave because I know him at this point, but yeah. so, you know, forgive me, it's going to sound me, make me sound too much like a, a friend or a fanboy, but like Dave wrote his best stuff in the 90s in a context when, a, you know, and I say in that passage, and it's a fraught term, when political correctness, you know, was a big deal. And, and obviously that's a term that people who are, tend to be critics of it apply. But, but when the intersection of sort of politics and art and culture was very much on people's minds and he was a real critic of some of the ways that he felt people were trying to inject some of the sort of simplistic and crude ways he felt people were trying to inject politics into the sort of creation and appreciation of art you know and that was a big deal in the 90s and we retrospectively call it the culture wars and there's all sorts of things like battles over Robert Maplethorpe's photos mm -hmm. um, you know or Andre Serrano's Piss Christ and the National Endowment for Arts and all of that and so that was a big deal in the 90s and then it kind of faded, you know, just to the relevance argument. I think it's not easy to, to persuade people right now that what Dave's writing about is relevant. We're in another moment, which think these are moments that happen periodically in American culture when, that's, that's profoundly politicized, where questions of the intersection of politics and morality and art and culture are at the forefront of people's minds. And when you're watching TV or going to the movies or reading a book or reading an article in a magazine, for so many people, there's this kind of layer this political moral layer on top of it well in a little bit kind of on the note i'm definitely not going to ask you to answer this question because okay. it's way too it's way too loaded and and i couldn't <laughs> and, answer it anyway. <laughs> and, and i couldn't answer it as well but it was something that um it's more of a a mindset of hickeys that you put um like you offer out to the world which i think would benefit a lot of us um this like idea based on his work that in the land of Hickey, all are welcome, all are forgiven, and your Eden is yours to furnish as long as you extend the same generosity to your neighbor, which mm -hmm. sounds easy enough. <laughs> it would it would be it would be lovely if if we could all manage to work that way, but that um it it brings me back to the whole idea of the um the Maplethorpe exhibit and like let everybody put out the art that they they want to put out and you can do the same and can we just let everything exist um which i loved so much of his his worldview around that the idea of the people that were good the people who put their work out there put the risk out there knowing that their livelihoods depended on it the galleries who took the things in um so i don't know if you just want to speak about that a little bit the the idea of allowing everyone to furnish their own eden and yeah and then, and just exist coexisting together and why that seems to be so hard, but it is something that Hickey firmly believed in, it seems like. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because, you know, when, when you say it or when, when I say it, <laughs> like, <laughs> like it sounds self-evident, right? You yeah. Know, when you just say it, it sounds self-evident. And then one of the things I've thought about a lot while working on this book and just over the past few years is, on the one hand, it sounds self-evident. On the other hand, probably for most of human history, it hasn't been self-evident at all, right? So yeah. like, you know, and, and this is a, you know, this is a bad example, but whatever, like the Nazis went after what they called degenerate art, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, the Soviets under, you know, Stalin, you know, imposed a sort of state-mandated form of, you know, of aesthetics. Like the idea that we should all be able to live as we want, create what we want, consume what we want is actually like, it, it is actually like it, over the course of human history, not the dominant mode, right? The dominant no. mode is that we're part of a community that has shared 
you know, norms and values and aesthetics, and that if you deviate from those, you're actually threatening the coherence of the tribe. The right? fabric will dis disassemble completely before <laughs> our eyes. <laughs> yeah, and, and and I mean that there's a powerful force to that argument, you know, yeah. and I think it's it's a, you know, it's a rare and and I would say extraordinary accomplishment that we've had some pretty good periods in our country where that's by and large been true, or at least yeah. there have been elements of it that have been true, or at a minimum, it's something that we strive towards. Um, I think, you know, so you think about Maplethorpe and having, you know, this exhibit of these, you know, extremely, I mean, beautiful, but extremely graphic photographs of you know, men doing naughty things to each other, or <laughs> however you want to say, men doing beautiful sexual things to each other, right? And some and some somewhat eroticized photos of kids or something, and you put it in a museum in Cincinnati, and you say, hey, you know, um, you know, if you want to go, go, but if you don't want to go, fine, but don't, you know, don't try and, you know, indict the museum for obscenity, yeah. as in fact happened, and it's easy enough yeah. to say, but again, you know, the from the perspective of of the the uh, the county or the city or something like that, they're saying, well, these these images of deviance are going to transform this culture that we have of you know domestic heterosexual life. And they were and and if they said that, they were absolutely right, right? Like looking back to 1990 from yeah. 2021, they were a hundred percent right. Images like that and that stuff would like fundamentally, profoundly transform the culture that we were living in. And so Dave says, and I agree with him, well, so be it, you know, that like, that like, um, you know, let's figure out how to live side by side with each other and we'll furnish our Eden. And of course, the part of it is like that where that's not just me and my house and you and your house is we have the museum, we have the public yeah. square, we have what's on TV and all of these things. And they carry with them the promise of profound change and that's scary to people and maybe it should be. And I, you know, I mean, you can either, I mean, I know which side I'm on, but it's, I, I have to say, like, if people are saying whether they're saying it from the right, that this, you know, Maplethorpe photographs are going to threaten the world that they know and cherish, or they're saying it from the left, that certain uh, representations that don't privilege a certain idea of people of color or marginalized people or sexuality or gender, you know, threatens the world that they cherish or would like to bring into existence. Like, they're right, it does. Yeah. And you kind of have to decide which of the, you know, which risk you want to take, I guess. Yeah. And how to, in a sense, we're trying to please everybody, even though we know that we can't. Right. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it's that, like I said, not asking you to answer the question because I don't know how we, be, we begin to, we have to decide <laughs> what risks are worth taking. Um, and, and I guess what to do a little bit of an ask for, forgiveness, not permission <laughs> yeah. in, in certain senses. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, Dave says, and I don't know if this is true or not, but it's beautiful. I love, I enjoy hearing it. Dave says that, you know, that art and culture is, is particularly important if you're thinking about the function of democracy, because it's through arguments about, you know, what we value and why that we, that we can sort of play out a lot of our differences. So even when these arguments get very nasty, there might be a kind of positive function to it. We're sort of playing out and sort of in, in some way resolving or at least deferring some of the tensions so that we can keep, avoid killing each other. So, so that it doesn't become, you know, a fight in the streets or something like that. 
Um, and so he, he would say, you know, let's do it in art so that we don't do it in the streets or something like that. And that when we don't, when we, when we try impose too strict a kind of code, implicit or explicit code on the art we're creating, then it actually limits the function of the arts to, to mediate those tensions and they, will, and they will pop up elsewhere in places we don't really want them to pop up. Yeah, or we don't want them and aren't prepared or don't have the tools or the language to articulate. And that's, that's the problem a lot of time. We don't have the language to articulate or we have come to police language so heavily yeah. that we can't, people aren't sure what to say. And so they can, they've found a way to make art instead. And we've got another medium for it now. And on that note too, the idea of what is worth talking about, the conversations worth having. I really loved the section on Hickey's naming of the 90s in the art world as the year of beauty, the decade of beauty. Yeah. Um, and off the top of his head, decided that that's what he was going to call it. And coming to a room full of crickets, no one actually coming back at him, nobody having a response really. And then realizing, oh, uh, okay, like maybe it could be what you say turned into a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy there. But the the idea that saying it not having much of a response maybe meant that it was a mistake or could be uh could be wrong but mm -hmm. the immediate follow-up of that wrongness or that mistake being an opportunity to to bump up against it more and to ask more questions about it I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit yeah I mean you know so so I mean the story in short is he wrote this first book, The Invisible Dragon, essays, four essays on beauty. And, and the way he tells it, at least, and I don't know if this is true, Dave, sometimes, you know, makes, <laughs> makes better stories out of what were <laughs> stories, is that he was just at a panel, uh, you know, some panel with other critics or artists, and somebody asked him, you know, what will be the issue of the 90s in the art world? And he just sort of popped out of his mouth, beauty. Beauty will be the issue um, of the 90s in the art world. And then, and he was expecting people to argue with him and nobody argued with him. And he said, well, why didn't anybody argue with him? Um, there must be something there, right? And it, and it, which is like, you can say or not say, but, but it turned out, it turned out there was. And so he went on to write these four essays um, on beauty and, um, and that was his sort of first big book, which was just printed by this tiny little press, you know, in this small chapbook edition and became this kind of underground phenomenon. In the art world, and basically what he was saying is that you know conversation about what art is for had been, you know, which for hundreds of years had been about what is beautiful had become about all these other things that were you know what is not so much what is politically correct. Um, I think French theory was big in the art world in the in the 90s, so it was about you know what what are expressions of power, you know what is the relationship to the body, you know what is you know, also, you know, political questions about how does it serve or not serve the working class or representations of women or people of color or things like that. But, but the art world in the 90s had become very, in the 80s, I think, particularly into the 90s, become profoundly sort of theoretical and philosophical. And Dave said, you know, no, 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 you're, you're all missing the point. Uh, it's still about beauty, what is beautiful, though that doesn't mean there aren't really fascinating, important, political, moral, aesthetic questions about what constitutes beauty. Um, and so he wrote this book and, and, and then there were a few other books that came out, you know, in, in a period of time, it wasn't entirely what he did, but, but, but to a substantial extent, you know, if you ask somebody in the art world, you know, 
about 90s and beauty, they'll say his name, like his book and yeah. his theories really had a profound influence on the discourse, I'd say, for that period of time into the early 2000s. Well, then he says that he he went around, he asked a bunch of people when you when I when I say beauty, what do you think of? And he was surprised that so many people answered money. Yeah. And uh, yeah. and money. And so it seems like that also was a bit of a turn from like the idea of beauty being something philosophical or a um, an idea that you're trying to put words to um, and then somehow having to detangle it from being conflated with value. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just, I think his sense was at the time that for many people in the art world, beauty sounded like a frivolous thing to sort of hang your, your assessment of the value of a work of art. Beauty is like, <laughs> you know, a pretty sunset or something like that. And yeah. that's what they, that's what, you know, that's what they sell in advertising. It, it, it felt sort of thin and, 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 and trivial compared to power or, or money or politics or morality or race or something like that. Um, and so Dave had to sort of, you know, in, in writing this book, part of what he had to do is sort of create a whole kind of infrastructure of argument explaining why beauty was much, was, was both much more important than people had been giving it credit for, but also much more capacious and, 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 and rich and sort of encompassed all those other things that they thought it was subordinate to or kind of a, a, a flimsy, offshoot of he has a great I mean one of the sort of amazing things he does just as a writer is like he has a great kind of long passage in one of his essays in the invisible dragon where he basically if you boil it down he's basically accusing all those people of being kind of misogynists yeah. you know and it, and it's it, it's interesting you don't see it coming at all and then once he says you're like oh shit yeah that's right right <laughs> oh he got beauty me is, beauty <laughs> is feminine you know and basically uh -huh. what he's doing it's much more you know it's it's much more beautiful an argument than this but basically what he's saying is well beauty is identified with the feminine right yeah it's soft it's roundness it's it's external and that historically have been sort of attributes associated with the feminine and so that the whole you know this whole you know, critical infrastructure that was dismissive of beauty was sort of advocating all of these other more masculine qualities like depth and capital T truth and rigor and politics. And so he sort of in, in this like, it was just, it's just this kind of brilliant sort of jujitsu move where, you know, people think that he's coming at them from the right and he's saying, no, 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 actually you guys are a bunch of sexist misogynists yeah. who are dismissive of beauty because it's not sufficiently masculine. And if you really were in touch with what was sort of women and and feminine and, and the depth and the importance and the, just the value of that, then you wouldn't be so dismissive. Whether it's true or not, I mean, it's like, like, or fair or not, I wouldn't, it's not even, it's not even a question of fair. It's just an extraordinary, like, piece of writing to sort of pull that off and kind of come up and around everyone from a direction they didn't expect and sort of kind of wrong foot them. So, I mean, this well, is a, as an appreciation, appreciate, as an appreciator of his writing, it's just kind of amazing to, to read. Well, it, yeah, and it's it it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem out of character for him, especially based on the the parts of the book that you wrote about his history and some of the women he were he was involved with described him that way. They talked about him being a gentle person and a kind person, like you know, despite any of the other things that happened in his life, especially the hard life that he lived and the way he grew yeah. up. Um, that above all, they were so drawn to him because he had a lot, he wasn't very intimidating mm -hmm. um, in certain ways, uh, which I found interesting, but I think that that also makes, it allows people 
that sort of consciousness to write about those things, um, especially men, when they aren't writing that way or they're expected to stick to those misogynist uh, patriarchal viewpoints. Yeah, he's interesting. I mean, I think in some ways he was, I think so, I think almost all of his, all of his closest relationships with women, and I don't, that's not just romantic relationships. In his yeah. Life. I think it was an easier time around women. It's not that he wasn't daunting. I mean, he could be daunting in his kind of intellect, and I, there could be an arrogance around him, but there was also a real nurturing quality to him, and I think also a desire, in, you know, and perhaps a little bit of a kind of man boy sort of way to be. <laughs> to be. <laughs> to be nurtured, um, you know. It, so it's complicated. I, I don't want. I don't want to sort of excuse him of the accusation yeah. of, of just in his personal life being a little bit sexist. You know, and one of his ex girlfriends, you know, who st- thinks very fondly of him, but was like, you know, is he a bit of a sexist asshole? Like, yes, in certain ways yeah. he is. But I do. But he's also somebody who, who can be very nurturing and vulnerable and open. And I think. You know, I just talked to a lot of people who felt that, you know, who knew him personally, who felt something comparable to what I felt in reading him, which was that he gives permission to people. He says, you know, you need to sort of figure, you need to figure out what you're going to do. I'm not going to tell you what to do. I will, you know, I talked to people who were a student at UNLV. You know, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm not going to, I'm going to give you things to read that I think will be interesting when you're doing something that I think is is cool and, and and seems like it's really coming from you, then I'm going to support you and push that forward. And when you're doing stuff that's not so great, I'm not going to beat you down. I'm just going to, because the only way you're going to get to something good is to go through that. And I think that's what he's like as a teacher. I think that was often what he was like as a friend. I think um, it's what he's like as a writer. And even, you know, with the, with, with the woman I was saying who was, you know, kind of making fun of him for being a little bit of a sexist asshole. But I, she also felt it's like when when she had grown up enough to be done with Dave, which is yeah. like, like she felt like um, that was okay too. Like, like that yeah. was okay with him. Like, I mean, I'm sure literally at the time when she yeah. didn't want to be with him anymore, it wasn't okay. But, but, but the, in some global sense, it's like, yeah, yeah, I understand why you're, why you're done with me. Yeah. Like, um, and you have to move on because <laughs> I have my limitations. Um, I'm, I'm putting a lot of words in their mouth, but it, I think that made sense. Yeah. And I mean, on that note, I wanted to bring it back around to the passage you read us earlier on. Um, that was kind of where I wanted to close us out this sort of yeah. idea of how we move, like how we get this book into people's hands, get Hickey's work into people's hands and kind of keep this legacy going. And I think a lot of that is about how people interact with art and the ideas of what is, what is accessible. I know there's so much talk now about how museums feel inaccessible to people, not physically Mm -hmm. because of the time we're living in, but just in general. Um, and so I had pulled out that passage too, that his, um, what his professor said to him, and Hickey was just like, no one had ever told me that I was anything before, anything at all. And yeah. uh, let alone a toilet seat, which I am not going to agree with, but the the other part, sure. But nobody told me I was anything. And I think so much of the time we either, maybe that comes back to language, feeling like it's so policed. Even if we're trying to compliment people, we're not sure how to talk to people or how to approach people or how to approach their work, even if it's people we know or people we don't know. Yeah. Um, but just telling people that you liked their work, which seemed like a lot of what his gallery was about 
mm-hmm. was he, he, and your last line there, he chose what he liked. Yeah. And that was it. It was as simple as that, that he saw things he liked and he wanted to let people know that he thought they were good. Yeah. And that seems like a very, again, maybe this is just us talking it out, easy, accessible way to go about things. And maybe <laughs> it's not, <laughs> but in the grand scheme of things, it seems like such a simple idea to see someone's art and tell them that you think it is good and that you think that they are good. Yeah. I mean, trying to think of how that, <laughs> it seems simple. Well, it seems simple to say it. It's very hard to hear mm-hmm. it uh, yeah. for most of us, you know, and I think this is true of all of us. We walk around with a lot um, weighing us down and, 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 and the, the process, a lot weighing us down, a lot clouding our mind a lot inflecting the way that we think about the world. And to be an artist, I mean, it's just what I think of any of any sort, right? Whether it's a chef or a writer or a painter or a musician or a curator or anything like that, you know, to, to be truly good at that, you know, you have to get you have to get in touch with something that's get in touch with and ultimately trust something that's pretty deep in yourself. And all those other voices and those weights will be a part of that, but you you need to sort of be able to kind of filter them out and pick with them what they want. And that's really hard. You know, and I was talking yeah. about like the weight of my family and my yeah. dad and his politics and things like that, you know, and, 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 and thinking about my role in the world and all the ways in which, you know, I probably carry a lot less weight than a lot of other people, right. You know, whatever it can be, whether it's, you know, racial stuff or gender stuff or sexuality stuff, or just, you know, shitty childhood or whatever. We all carry around so many of those voices trying to tell us what we're supposed to be and I think to be an artist in a meaningful sense, you need to be able to sort of hold your own and find a core against that. And I think what some art can do for us, and I think I think Dave's writing is in this category, you know, it's why you push it into people's hands is it can help clear some of that weight off or clear some of those voices out of our head so that we can get a little closer to who we are, who we wanna be or something like that. I mean, f- first and foremost, you know, I value it because it, it's just special, right? And we have that feeling you have when you're in the presence of some kind of art or creation that's special, but in terms of what it can do for us, like, I don't know, it's not like Dave's writing can't tell us whether we're good, um, but it can tell us that like some of the bullshit we have to sort of clear out of the way to like even get anywhere close to that or something. It can, like yeah, it can, it can help you clear the the bullshit away so that you can maybe see for yourself that you either have the potential to be good. You talked about that too, that thread of pulling things away and realizing that when you dig through everything, you see what's left, that some people have it, that just that innate gift in them. And yeah. a lot of times it gets clouded, but you just got to dig through and find it. Yeah. And, and I guess I would extend it. I mean, as long as we're getting into some real meaning of life shit, I guess it extended beyond art too, right? It's hard to be a self- like a, a, an authentic self, like a real distinctive person of, of you know, strength and, and distinct and in the world, period, right? Yeah. Like it's hard to be somebody who is different from all other people in really valuable and admirable and, and compelling ways. And, and I think a lot of the struggle to become that for ourselves is a similar kind of struggle. It's like taking from our influences what's valuable, but also clearing away a lot of the brush and the bullshit that people in the world will put on us, you know? And I think, you know, for me, I mean, you know, who can say there's no judge of whether I've made anything of myself, but like, 
you know, to the extent that I have, I mean, some part of that I, I, I credit to Dave and it's why it's, it's sort of so special for me to write the book was like, that's just somebody who, who helped me become a sort of more, more myself in ways that feel valuable. We, I mean, we all have those people, and I think that that's what makes this book so special is to be able to to extend that legacy and continue to advocate for him um, and for his work. And I'm really excited to push it into people's hands along with <laughs> along with copies of his book. Well, I had I someone, I... yeah, I had someone tell me about Air Guitar and how it like they were like, yeah, I read the first one, but Air Guitar really was just something else and it's a really amazing book um we have them on our shelves at skylight and we will soon have far from respectable on our <laughs> shelves as well before we uh close up are you doing any other events or have anything else you want to plug um the only other thing i'll plug is i actually just published a piece it's online at the texas monthly website about um the gallery that dave ran in austin texas uh, from 1967 to 71 and i touched on it in the book but actually, for realsies, um, the, the article is, you know, 98% of it is not from the book. So it's, 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 it's new stuff. And I, I don't know what their, um, what their paywall situation is, but I think maybe you get, you know, two or three articles for free a month. So you can go read it for and free, but obviously you should buy my book and you should buy it from Sky. <laughs> <laughs> and what, remind me, uh, his gallery had an incredible name. What was it? Uh, a clean, well-lighted place. Well-lighted place. I love yeah. that. Yeah. Um, well, thank you again to Daniel for sharing Far From Respectable with us and for talking to me about Dave Hickey and his extraordinary life and the meaning of life and art and all things uh, existential, if we went there. Yeah. <laughs> Today's I guest, did. I think we did. Today's guest, once again, was Daniel Oppenheimer. You can order his new book, Far From Respectable, at www.skylightbooks.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you in store soon. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.